0: Our passage today is an entire chapter, so I asked for some help in reading it. So if I can have my readers come up, uh, Mark and Nathaniel and Favor are going to help me read this passage. And actually, you all are going to help as well. So in your bulletin is this insert, and you'll see that there are some portions that are bolded and underlined. That's our portion. So uh, Mark is going to read the part of Jesus. Uh, Nathaniel's going to read the part of Pilate. Favor's kind of the narrator, so pray for her. She's reading almost everything. <laughs> and then we, the congregation, are kind of everybody else, mostly groups of people in this passage, okay? And what I want to invite you to do is to pay attention to the details that Mark includes in this passage as we're, as we're reading through it together. So actually favor, why don't you stand here? Cause I think it's going to make sense for Mark and Nathaniel to share a, a mic. Typically we stand as we read scripture. It's a long passage. I'm not going to ask you to do that today, but I would just ask that you uh, be ready to read uh, our portion when it comes to it and to pay attention to, uh, to the details that Mark includes.
1: But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did.
0: Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews?
1: Asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead.
0: What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews?
1: Pilate asked them. Crucify him. They shouted.
0: Why? What crime has he committed?
1: Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder. Crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flocked and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him. Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, They took off the purple robe and put his clothes on him, put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others. They said, Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried in a loud voice.
0: Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani.
1: which means,
0: "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?"
1: When some of these standing near heard this, they said, "Listen, he's calling Elijah." Someone ran, filled the sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now Let's see if comes to he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and carried for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in the tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thank you very much, readers. Uh, So from this passage, I'll preach this morning from the title, Jesus Really Died. Every once in a while, I will stumble across an article about how some extraordinarily wealthy person or group of people is trying to cheat death. Sometimes the scheme involves purchasing, securing, and stockpiling a piece of property in a remote part of the world in preparation of some future apocalypse. Other times, the plan is longer termed and more harebrained, in my opinion, in its scope. Like collecting DNA or preserving a deceased body in hope of some future scientifically enabled resurrection. If you think I'm exaggerating, just Google transhumanists. On the other end of this death-defying spectrum are those who seek medically assisted suicide or euthanasia. In Canada, for example, changes in legislation over the past few years have made it easier for impoverished people suffering chronic illness, depression, or even the lack of housing and other social support services to request state-sanctioned death. Journalists and activists have shown that for those without certain resources, it can be easier to request death than to access support services which would increase the quality of life. What these two experiences share in common is a profound discomfort with death, and the suffering which typically accompanies it. While the rich attempt to postpone death, the poor are being encouraged to just get it over with. Our society's infatuation with wealth and our disdain for the poor highlight our unique uneasiness with death. But we are not special in that way. For all of our individual differences, the fear of death is something that most people across time and place have shared in common, which makes the line of the Apostles' Creed, which we will consider this morning, so jarring, or it should be at least. During the first two weeks of the sermon series, Richard Wilson and Pastor Michelle preached the beginning lines of the creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Virgin Mary, born of the, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Now, if you missed either of these excellent messages like I did, then I hope you'll do what I did and take the time to listen to them as they both set up this series very, very well. And now, after covering creation and incarnation, the creed immediately turns to suffering and death. We believe that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into Hades. Suffering, crucifixion, death, burial, descension into hell. If you are trying to recruit people to a new religion, people who are afraid of death, this is not a good plan. Why would the early church, as they formulated the first creed to summarize their faith, why would they lead so bluntly, so explicitly, so inescapably with death? Why not begin with the promise of heaven or the joy of salvation or the gift of community or with anything else. Well, as Pastor Michelle pointed out last Sunday, ours is a Christian tradition which always searches scripture for the source of our belief. And by centering the suffering and death of Jesus, the early church was simply honoring how their scriptures did the same thing. If you have never read one of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life straight through, try it with Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. What you're going to find is many fascinating, mind-blowing moments from Jesus' life which only get the slightest bit of attention. And then in every single case, arriving at Jesus' suffering and death, everything slows down. as though everything which came before in these biographies, the virgin birth, the paradigm-shifting teachings, the miracles, the confrontations with the authorities, everything else was building to this suffering and death. Borrowing from Scripture, the authors of the creed wanted us to grasp the significance of Jesus' death. This was not a symbolic death. This was not a metaphor about dying. No, this was the real thing. And the gospel writers force us to grasp with the obscenity of death. For example, in our passage this morning, maybe you noticed that Mark established the authenticity of Jesus' death By emphasizing details about his suffering. Why does the creed following scripture insist that we return again and again to the terror of death? And not death in just general terms, but the whips, thorns, nails, and spear of this particular death. Like us, those early Christians inhabited a culture which despised death. Surely it couldn't be true that the Son of God had actually died and died in such a humiliating fashion. It must have been the case that that Jesus had only seemed to have died. Perhaps his spirit had escaped at the last possible moment. Or maybe it only appeared that Jesus had died and, the, and that he had been resuscitated and rescued from the tomb. Surely the Son of God would not willingly submit to something so thoroughly embarrassing and human as death. And to each of these death Denying possibilities, the early Christians said, No. We believe that Jesus suffered, was crucified, died, was buried, and descended into Hades. And the reason they insisted on never sanitizing the death of their Savior, is that they had come to understand that through this one terrible death, God was resurrecting all things. Friends, whether you have been a Christian for as long as you can remember, or are just beginning to consider giving your life to Jesus, here is the thing that we cannot look away from today. We are saved through the totality of Jesus' death into the fullness of his life. We are saved through the totality of Jesus' death into the fullness of his life. I want to spend a few more minutes filling this idea in, exploring how it is that we are saved through Jesus's death into the abundance of his life. And then, and then we'll end by considering how Jesus's death has implications for how you and I view our past and how we face our future. We are saved through the totality of Jesus's life into the of his death, into the fullness of his life. You were made for life. You were created for life. And yet sin destines us for death. After the first couple of chapters of humanity's story in the book of Genesis, and humanity have willfully rebelled against God, we find in Genesis chapter 3, God's response. The man has now become like one of us knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. We were created for life with God. And yet now, death is our natural end as a result of our sins. We spent time on this a few weeks ago. Uh, the language that the Apostle Paul uses is that the, the telos of sin, the perfection of sin, the purpose of sin is separation from God and death. So though we were created for life with God, our sin destines us for death. So Some of you are aware of some of the research and the thinking around how unhealed trauma gets passed down from one generation to the next. We can think of sin in the same kind of way. Being passed on from one generation to the next. What we are born into. We are more than occasional sinners. We are more than people who might die. Sin has become hereditary. Death, our natural end. The Apostle Paul says it like this in Ephesians 2 and 1. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. This is the cosmic dilemma. The God who is life. The God who just is life. The God who is the source of all life loves those who are destined for death. The first disciples only very slowly started to understand that that this is why Jesus had come. They they, they had to first get their minds around the fact that Jesus hadn't come to make their lives a little bit better. That that Jesus hadn't come to fix up some parts of their lives. That that Jesus hadn't come to defeat the enemies that they had identified. Defeat Rome, uh, uh, get Herod off the throne, bring home the exiles, then we're good to go. Only slowly did the disciples begin to understand that Jesus had come to address the separation of the God of life and the people faded for death? How? How was this going to happen? How would the source, capital S, of life enter into its very opposite? The answer was too terrible to have even been imagined. To have even been considered. There was no precedent. For what God was going to do. In Jesus. Nobody said. That makes sense. When Jesus went to the cross. Nobody said. I saw that coming. Nobody said. That's how I would have written this story. Nobody. And yet. The God. Who is the essence of holiness. Becomes sin. God did not just incarnate our flesh, our experience. God incarnated our sin. I know that sounds blasphemous. So listen to what Peter says. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Paul says it more bluntly. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. It is no wonder that the early Christians made Jesus' death the very focus of their witness, because again, they believed that Jesus had come to do way more than patch up their lives. Than to defeat the enemies they had identified. Jesus had come to do way more than make them better people. More moral people. Jesus had come to disrupt the certainty of death. By defeating sin itself. Let me say it like this. The source of all life loved his sin-bound children enough to enter death itself for our salvation. The gruesome details that Mark includes are not for shock value. They are the painful and necessary evidence that Jesus entered the totality of death. Jesus did not dabble around the edges of your sin. Jesus did not mimic the death that will come for each of us. No, motivated by the joy of your salvation, Jesus entered fully into your suffering and death. The consequences of your sin were exhausted on His body. I wonder if this is why some of the old saints can still sing, No other found I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Those old saints know something about the the death of Jesus. That it's more than a spectacle or a sermon illustration. More than a spiritual boost to help you get through a difficult week. They understand that Jesus' shed blood was the antidote to our sin sickness unto death. The gospel writers make Jesus' death the climax of their biographies. Because they knew that this was how God had rescued the world. If you find yourself hesitating before a God who would enter the captivity and the desperation of a death destined people. Please know that you are not alone. The early church recognized that their Savior's surprising and humiliating death was a source of stumbling to some and foolishness to others. Like our ancient ancestors, if you and I are honest, we prefer our divinity to be godlike. Beyond the humiliations of suffering and death, The thirsty cries of a peasant teacher hanging from a crossbeam in the Middle Eastern sun is hardly the show of strength we think we deserve or require. Oh, but to those of us who have come to an end of ourselves this morning, to those of us who have grown weary of displays of power and promises of strength which inevitably devolve into displays of coercion and manipulation to those of us who can confess our inability to save ourselves from sin, to rescue ourselves from death's grasp, to those of us this morning who are willing to risk the patient love of God being more powerful than anything in heaven or on earth or under the earth. Well, to these women and men, the death of Jesus just Is the power of God accomplishing the salvation of the world? Please do not think yourself too sophisticated this morning for the death of Jesus. Please do not imagine yourself having graduated to a more sophisticated spirituality, for it is at the cross. And at the cross alone that your sin sickness has been cured. It is at the cross and the cross alone that your death destiny has been forever disrupted. We are saved through the totality of Jesus' death into the fullness of his life. Thanks be to God. And the fact that God saves us from death through Christ's death has practical implications then for how we live, the past and the future. Because we are saved through the totality of Jesus' death into the fullness of our life, his life, how we view our past changes. How we view and interpret and experience our past changes in light of Christ's salvation through his death. To be born into sin and death is to be born into a life where pain is inevitable. Any witnesses? Your experience of pain is different than mine. But everybody born into sin and death is going to experience a lifetime marked by pain. Some of you regularly find yourselves looking back on the wreckage of your own sinful decisions. Others of you are keenly aware of the wounds that you bear in yourself because of somebody else's sin. I I remember two specific people in our church sharing with me over the past few years that they were navigating what they would call seasons of death. People who they loved close to them passing away at at a just mind-boggling frequency. This is what it means to be born into a life of sin and death, which means that we are often looking back at our past, that our posture toward our past is often one of grief and regret. When things get quiet enough and still enough for us to be honest about our past. Which, by the way, can make coming to church feel kind of strange for some people. Because you walk in this place and we are praising God and we are happy and we are rejoicing and it can feel like we might be purposely forgetting our past, that we might be glossing over some things. Some of you may come into a place like this, keenly aware of the pain in your past and you see people rejoicing and celebrating and worshiping around you. And you say, well, I could never be that because my past is just too painful. Others of you look at that and say, well, I could never be that because I could never be fake. And this must be fake. So we need to be very clear that following Jesus is never about forgetting your past. Ever. (laughs) The Gospels would make no sense. There's too much detail about suffering and death. The creed itself won't let us forget the pain of our past. Following Jesus never erases the pain of our past. But Jesus does change our experience of our past. By acknowledging that Jesus, the Son of God, experienced the worst of sin and death, we are confessing that there has never been anything so ugly, so wicked, so dehumanizing in our lives that Jesus has not lived through it with us. Hear me very well. This does not mean that the suffering you experienced was good. doesn't mean that your sins against others or yourself were good. Evil... Is just evil. Sin is just sin. But can I say it like this? If Jesus was with you during your worst moments, then your worst moments were more than your worst moments. There was always more to your loss than losing, always more to your failure than failing, more to your grief than grieving. More even to your sin than sinning. Why? Because in Jesus, there is more to death than dying. I hope I'm preaching to a couple people this morning. That is to say that by entering fully into death, Jesus ensured that death would never have the final word. While the inevitable ends of sin and evil were death, by submitting his sinless body to our death, Jesus undermined the inevitable. He disrupted the unavoidable. He interrupted what we thought was inescapable. We are saved through the totality of Jesus' death into the fullness of his life. And this is a life in which we are no longer imprisoned by the heartbreak of our past because there was not a single moment in our past when Jesus was not present with us. And I'm jumping a line ahead in the creed, but it has to be said this morning that if God could bring salvation from suffering if God could bring resurrection from crucifixion, if God could leave death behind in that Jerusalem tomb as he walked back into life, then let me ask you this morning, which of your heartbreaking, shame-filled, grievous seasons from your past cannot be redeemed from the finality of death by the blood of Jesus? I dare say there's not a single one. Your regrets... And your failures, your wounds and your traumas, your guilt and your shame no longer rule you once you come to understand that the Son of God has already suffered through every one of those with you. You were not alone. You were not abandoned. You had not succeeded from cutting yourself off from the love of God. Your enemies had not succeeded in cutting you off from the love of God. Jesus was with you in the sickness and the loss and the grief. In heartbreak and tragedy and lament, Jesus was with you. Maybe you tried to run away like Jonah, but he was with you. You might have been slandered like David, uh, but he was with you. Maybe you were chased into captivity like Joseph, presumed upon like Esther, widowed like Ruth, persecuted like Stephen. But the witness of every one of these saints and the promise of our Lord's suffering and death is that there is nowhere that you could go to hide from his presence. Nowhere that you could be hidden from his presence. Nowhere you could flee from his compassion and righteousness, nowhere his mercy and justice could be kept from you. So, which memory or moment from your past deserves your Savior's healing today? I pause for a minute some of you have bracketed portions of your past and you have said that it was too painful. Listen, I understand I'm walking on very thin ice right now because it was more than painful. It was dehumanizing. It was, it was world shattering. And, and, and and some of us have bracketed some memories in our lives As being too much, too tender, too painful. And by siloing those off. We have stepped away from the power of God's healing into our past. We have contented ourselves with looking forward. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But but tenderly and, 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 and carefully and lovingly and pastorally, I want to say to, 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 to anybody who has bracketed portions of your past life off from the healing of your God. He was always with you. And that does not answer every question. And that does not solve every problem. And that is not a way of spiritualizing something that was profoundly traumatizing. Hear me clearly. But Jesus suffered for you. Jesus knows your suffering. There is nothing that you have been through that your Lord cannot feel in his body. The healing that we need is going to look very different for different ones of us. For some of us, it might mean coming forward for prayer every single Sunday. For others of us, it might look like finding a really good Christian therapist. Maybe it's inviting your community more deeply and honestly into more of your story. It could be joining a 12-step recovery group. Confessing, your sin specifically to a trusted friend or pastor who can offer the words of forgiveness and healing and grace to you. How you and I open ourselves up to Jesus's healing in our lives for our past can look a whole lot of different ways, but, but, but Jesus's death extends the fullness of his life even into our past. Which means that we can step into his healing for us, even for the places in our past. The fullness of Jesus's life, which is yours through the totality of his death, frees you from captivity to your past. And because we are saved through the totality of Jesus's death into the fullness of his life, it changes how we face the future. His death changes how we experience our past and how we face our future. Believing that Jesus pulled salvation from death, that sin no longer is the defining feature of our life, changes how we look forward. Problem with the future is that it's unknown. I don't like that. I don't have the ability to see around the corner and neither do you. And because of this, the future can provoke anxiety because we don't get to know what decisions our kids are going to make. We don't get to know if the funding for our position is going to be extended next year. We don't get to know what the impact of climate change is going to look like 10 years from now. We don't get to know if our best friend's health struggle is going to resolve the way we are praying for it to or not. Not knowing can be terribly hard. And in response to our inability to know the future, we, we can tend in two different directions. Some of us towards trying to control the future and others of us in attempting to avoid the future. I'm guessing you know who you are. <laughs> or maybe you're different depending on the day. Those of us who lean towards controlling the future, we, we, we are planning for every eventuality. We got spreadsheets for our spreadsheets. It can look like mapping out our child's future for them. I'm going to make sure you get these test grades so you can test into this school, so that you can get into that school, so that you can get accepted into that college, so that you can get that kind of job and that kind of salary and that kind of status. It can look like sticking to a very safe cultural script for our lives. If I just do this and stay in my lane here and kind of keep my head down, then I, I I can pretty much guarantee that by the time I'm this old, I will have done this thing and then I will be okay. And, and then others of us, we lean more towards avoidance. And so we have we have our heads down, but for a different reason. Uh, we're the ostrich in the sand. We're ignoring the frightening cultural trends maybe around us or in our own lives. We lack real hope because hope is always oriented in the future, some of us are profoundly addicted to entertainment. We can tell you way more about the lives of the characters on our favorite shows than we can about our actual neighbors because we need something to distract us from the future. Both control and avoidance are rooted rooted in fear. Fear about what we cannot know. Because the future reveals our human limitations. We are not God. And again, we stand at the precipice of death. What cannot be known or controlled. But if Jesus brought life from death, then the future is not something to be feared. Not because we can know it. We can't. But because whatever may come, we will not lose Jesus. One of the creed's strangest lines to me, you might have your own favorite, is the one at the end of our our passage today. He descended to hell. Now, this line comes from a kind of obscure passage in 1 Peter chapter 3, where where Peter is describing Jesus' resurrection before he has yet appeared to his disciples. 1 Peter 3 and 19 says, After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. And what the early church interpreted this as meaning was that Jesus went and harrowed hell. The harrowing of hell. Jesus literally went to hell and proclaimed the gospel of his death and resurrection in order to liberate those who had been captive in hell. Now, we don't have to know precisely what happened on that holy Saturday between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. Scripture is relatively quiet about this. But what is clear is that hell itself could not resist Jesus' victory over death. Now, there is a, a, an old Christian tradition of interpreting Jesus' atoning death as a, 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 a trick played on the devil. You see, that the devil thinks that he's finally got Jesus, that he's finally vanquished his foe that he finally found a strategy to defeat his enemy only to figure out that his death-dealing tactics had been turned inside out to become the source of his defeat. I I like that. I like the the, the trick played on the devil uh, uh, imagery here. And when we we imagine Jesus' death through this lens, we can imagine the forces of hell cackling with glee as Jesus' body is raised on the cross. The rebellion against the creator God seems to be complete. Humanity's very last hope is gasping for breath. Hell itself is primed to overspill its ancient boundaries, consuming all that bears the image of the creator you picture it? And then in the words of the creed, Jesus descended into hell. He did not fall into hell. He did not succumb to hell. He wasn't captured or kidnapped by the forces of hell. The devil did not drag our savior's lifeless body into Hades. No, Jesus descended. Which is to say that that under his own volition, under his own agency, full of the Holy Spirit of the living God, with marching orders from his father, Jesus went to hell. If sin wasn't enough to bind him, and death wasn't enough to stop him, then why would hell be enough to destroy him? And so... In the great reversal, rather than the forces of evil running wild with glee at the death of Jesus, Jesus stormed the gates of hell. Uh, Rather than the river Hades overrunning its banks, Jesus brought life into the pit. Rather than despair and cynicism and nihilism, claiming this earth forever, the God who submitted to the totality of death walked into hell and spoke into the shadows, peace and hope and courage for everybody who bows the knee to Jesus. And so if hell itself has no claim on those who've placed their faith in the crucified savior, then would you please tell me? What part of your unknown future is too much for your God to handle? You don't have to control what can't be controlled. You don't have to avoid what cannot be avoided. In the power of the God who harrowed hell, you can face the future bravely, hopefully, And joyfully. Practically speaking. Some of you this morning are facing. A legitimately uncertain future. And the temptation is to try to control it. Others of us are avoiding something we know is coming. That something may be something that's truly difficult. That something also might be something that God said to you a while ago. And and you have been unwilling to step into it. For all of us, a prayer. God who has gone before me. Even into death. Even into hell. To rescue me into your life. Help me to turn my face toward the future with courage and hope knowing that whatever may come, I cannot lose you. Could we pray that this week? Could we pray that about the things we are trying to control, the things that we are trying to avoid? Could we instead face the future with our feet rooted on Calvary, accepting that nothing in heaven on earth or below the earth can separate us from the love of God? The totality of Jesus' death, which saves you into the fullness of his life, empowers you for the future. Zach, you want to come come back up? Thanks. Let me end with this. The death of Jesus was not an object lesson, even if it was a good object lesson, about how much God loves you. His crucifixion is not a comforting story meant to distract us from our own inevitable mortality. From the very beginning, the women and men who placed their faith in Jesus contended that Israel's Messiah, God's Son, their Savior, had truly and horribly died. For them, as for us, Jesus' death was at the center of their faith. For through the totality of his death, his followers were invited into the fullness of eternal life. What had appeared to be the ultimate humiliation, a universal sign of weakness and defeat, what had appeared as death's dreadful purpose sharpened to its terrible and terminal end. What had appeared to be a confirmation of humanity's great fear that life's beautiful brevity will always be swallowed up in the endlessness of death. What had appeared as the victory of a harsh and random universe over any comfort of a personal and loving God. Well, the women and men who followed Jesus through death into life found that the appearance of death's finality, the appearance of death's totality was just that, an appearance standing on ground, soaked by their Savior's blood, shadowed by the cross which had taken their Savior's life, these ordinary saints could face the ancient abyss unblinkingly and ask triumphantly, O death, O death, Do you hear the scorn in the question? Oh, death! Oh, it's a rhetorical question. Oh, death! Where is your victory? Oh, death. Oh, death. Where is your sting? Jesus Christ, incarnate Son of God, who steps into the fullness of our humanity, help this. To be the realist, real thing in our lives. We're not interested in an abstract theological principle. We want to live this. We want to taste and see of the fullness of your life. Which is a gift to us through your death. So make it practical, make it real, make it specific spirit of the living God for your people today. I pray your uh, your wisdom. I pray your uh, Holy Spirit's voice in each of the prayer minister's ears as they pray for your people today. In the name of Jesus, we pray.